0: because it's something that I've actually never done before. I've never spoken about a personality and someone uh, an isolated class on an individual. And I think there's no better individual to uh, to start with than Maimonides. And you ask me, Rabbi, Maimonides died more than 800 years ago. Why is it so significant? Why is it important to spend an hour and 25 minutes to talk about him, what he meant, and give a little flavor of his life and his impact and his influence on Jewish thought and Jewish philosophy and Jewish learning. So that's, I think, a very legitimate question. You know, Why is it important? What do we gain uh, to have this discussion? So I, I wrote down uh, three reasons uh, why I think it's important for us. I'm sure there's more reasons as well. Uh, but number one, in our classes till now, we've talked a lot about Maimonides. We've quoted him multiple, multiple times. Uh, we dealt a lot with Jewish philosophy, so Jewish life and practice. And there's no way to talk about those things and do it justice if you're not going to mention Maimonides multiple, multiple times. So we already know a lot about him, and we already hear a lot about him. But I want to give maybe um, um, a um, coherent, cogent uh, insight onto who he was and what and what he and what he uh, what his what is his significance. So we talked about him. Let's talk about him further. Uh, number two. Uh, I think even though Maimonides died many, many hundreds of years ago, his influence and especially his literary accomplishments are still as relevant today as they ever were, right? Case in point, uh, the works of Maimonides uh, till this day spawned hundreds of books a year written on Maimonides. There's hundreds of books every single year that are written on Maimonides and his works, so even though this is someone who died hundreds of years ago, his works and his life and his impact is still very much felt today. So I don't think it's, it's an ancient topic. I think it's, it's much more of a uh, dynamic and ongoing topic, as we'll to see why. And the last reason why I think it's important to learn about his life and his, uh, you know, his place in the path, so to speak, of transmitting Torah is because we'll learn a lot about Torah itself when we talk about Maimonides' uh, contribution to Torah. Uh, so we're going to talk more about his uh, his influence and his writings uh, than we will his life. We'll also try to give a little bit of a flavor of his life and what he actually went through. How's that sound? We're excited? Excellent. Okay, let's go. So Maimonides was born in 1135 in Cordova, in Spain. Now Spain. Uh, had uh, you know, the medieval Middle Ages. It was, the, it was the golden age of Spain. Jewish people had a wonderful time uh, for about 400 years. There was a vibrant Jewish community in Spain. And that kind of ended with Maimonides. It, he, he kind of marks the zenith and it was, it was all downhill from there. Uh, his father was a distinguished rabbi. His father is one of his also, he uh, considers him to be his teacher, his primary teacher. Uh, He was a descendant of King David, the royal family of the Jewish people. And Maimonides, from from a young age, exhibited tremendous intellectual capabilities, superb intellect, a photographic mind, and intense willpower to sit and study. And at the age of 15, he writes about himself that he had already accomplished a complete education in all areas of scholarship, uh, holy, Torah, and secular.
1: Fifteen?
0: At the age of fifteen. That's astonishing. That's astonishing, yes. Uh, when we say all areas of, 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 of knowledge, obviously we're talking about Torah, but we're talking about also mathematics. Uh, we're talking about uh, astronomy. Maimonides has tremendously detailed writings of astronomy, and you know even... Uh, built upon obviously models that uh, are still true today. You know, Jewish astronomy is built on the fact that the Earth is a sphere. We knew that way, way, way uh, uh, thousands of years ago, way before everyone else did.
1: So not Ptolemaic.
0: <clears throat> no. No. we the Torah, the Torah and also we have we have things in the Torah right that like only now like NASA's coming across them, you know, like the exact length of a lunar moon, for example. Like it's written in the Talmud. The Talmud says the how exact long of a,
1: what? of a lunar moon
0: of a lunar month, how long does it take? You know, down to the second. You know. We have those things in detail. So at the age of 15, a chaotic upheaval happened to Maimonides as an individual, but also to the entire Spanish uh, Jewry. There was a group of Islamic fanatics called the Almohads, and they staged an upheaval in Spain... And with Islam, we know that they're constantly vacillating between uh, moderates and fanatics. Right? There are some Islamists over history that have taken uh, the Talmud, uh, not the Talmud, the Quran uh, very seriously and very literally. And doing that equals fanaticism and oftentimes cruelty. And there's no cruelty that equals the cruelty perpetrated in the name of God because then there's no inhibitions. So what was a moderate Islamic caliphate became an uh, extremist in the year 1150. They, uh, they had a coup and they won, and they gave the Jews an ultimatum. They said, "Either convert to Islam, or you leave." And we know this is an example that we see many multiple times in history uh, The vast majority of Jews chose exile, as the Maimonides family. Many Jews converted. But they converted only, only as a facade or as a ruse, and uh, and then years later, when uh, when the tide changed, they tried to come back, and there was a whole controversy. You will let them back. These are traitors, so to speak. They converted to Islam, but now you don't know, want to come back to being Jews. Uh, but the vast majority of them did uh, convert back or return back to Jewry uh, in you know in out in the open. And Maimonides was instrumental in, in assuring that. There's
1: Either a question way. about whether Maimonides converted. Well, there's a
0: debate about that. That's true. There is a debate about that. Uh, but I, I, according to tradition, according to the story, he didn't because they family they, they left. Well, they actually went first. They went to Fez. Fez is in Morocco, North Africa. And so, at the age of fifteen, Maimonides and his family went to Morocco to escape the, Al- the Almohads, which which is the reason why people. It's it's safe to say that he, they didn't convert because why would they? Now, they went to Morocco and unfortunately didn't go far enough. This is an example that we see again in, in the times of, you know, the Holocaust. A lot of German Jews have a weird staping the Nazis. And they escaped, but they didn't quite go far enough. They went to Belgium or to France or someplace that was eventually conquered by the Nazis. They didn't quite escape them. Amadis uh, also as well, he went to the fa- him and his family, he's only 15 years old, him and his family went to Morocco and Fez, and very soon afterwards there was an additional uh, revolution, and the Almohads uh, again took control, and Maimonides and his family, they ended up spending between seven and nine years living in caves in the Atlas Mountains in North Africa. So this gives us some kind of a, a, of a picture of somewhat of a, a chaos that would occur in Maimonides' life. We'll see this as an ongoing theme. And at the, imagine the age of 15, and for us, we think, okay, you move from Spain to Morocco. It's not so far on the map. But in ancient times, where travel was very precarious, was very dangerous, uh, Maimonides himself had a phobia for travel. His brother, we'll see later on, hopefully, his brother is... But he had only one brother, was a uh, renowned businessman, a merchant, who was also uh, supported financially with the Maimonides, but he uh, was lost at sea. So we'll see later on that he wrote wrote a letter, and he had some sort of a phobia from these uh, dangerous travels that people take even just across the Mediterranean uh, because he himself had tragedy with his own brother dying at sea. Either way, Maimonides spent nine years, between seven and nine years, in the Atlas Mountains, in a cave. And there is where he wrote the first of his three major literary accomplishments. Any one of these three literary accomplishments would have guaranteed Maimonides' immortality. Any one of them. Because any one of them, their scope and the magnitude... And the impact and the influence of the work was so enormous and so groundbreaking that just one of one of those three would have been beyond it's beyond the capacity of of people. Most people today even to study, but to author, it's just it's mind boggling. And Maimonides had three of these, three massive, groundbreaking, revolutionary works. The first one he wrote as a teenager. In in the caves in Morocco. And this was his commentary on the Mishnah. Pirush HaMishnah, commentary on the Mishnah. uh, This was the first commentary written on the Mishnah, on the entire Mishnah, 63 books of the Mishnah, a commentary from beginning to end with multiple introductions. And we'll see more about that. um, We'll see more about what, what, what just in a second. Just uh, hang on for that. Hang on to that thought of the introductions. This commentary in the Mishnah was very unique. First of all, it was the first one of its kind. The Mishnah was written uh, about a, a thousand years earlier, uh, and no one had succeeded in writing a commentary in all sixty-three books of the Mishnah. No one had done it, and Maimonides, as a teenager, did it. And and in this, and, and he did things that were never done before. He was very innovative. For example, he wrote it in Arabic. And he wrote it in Arabic because his intention was that it should be ready and available for everyone. That was the common language spoken. And therefore, he wanted everyone to read it, to access it. He had a vision for what this was going to accomplish. This was going to make the Mishnah very accessible. For everyone, and therefore he wanted it to be written in the vernacular that people are familiar with, so he wrote it in Arabic, but he didn 't write in Arabic letters interestingly, he wrote in Hebrew alphabet with uh, with uh, with the uh, Hebrew script with the arabic with the Arabic language like
1: transliteration.
0: yeah well like uh, like what Yiddish eventually became the same thing Yiddish became its own language, but it was written eventually uh, it was a uh, hebraicized german but ev- but it was written eventually in hebrew letters
1: in spain what were they speaking in, in Cordoba, spain i
0: assume it was uh it was some sort of uh spanish or arabic or ladino ladino was like uh, in a, like in a hebraicized uh mixture of spanish and arabic uh, this is a common thing. There's some. There are some that are arguing that uh, it's happening today with English. That there's already some words that. English. Yeah. Well, no. There's Yiddish words. That, Yiddish words are Hebrew or Jewish words. Means that we, we're Jewifying our languages. We have it with Ladino. Uh, we have it obviously with Yiddish and German. Uh, and uh, over over hundreds of years, the Jewish people kind of developed their own dialect for the uh, the language spoken, uh, you know, amongst uh, the general population so he wrote in Arabic with Hebrew, Hebrew letters uh, and he approved, he, there, were approved commenta- uh, there were approved translations, there was a family, a very famous family that lived in Provence in southern France the Ibn Tibon family very famous family, you can google them and they were renowned translators of Arabic texts into Hebrew and we have a series of letters between Maimonides and Shmuel, Rabbi Shmuel Ibn Tibbon, in, in France, where, uh, where they were corresponding, and he would ask him, how do I translate this word? How do I translate this word? Like, oh, you know, these, these words. And he was the official sanctioned translation. And today, when, we, when you open a book of Maimonides, uh, in his commentary on the Mishnah, you'll probably see the Hebrew translation of Rabbi Shmuel Ibn Timur. How did
1: we get these documents? Who kept them? Yeah, that's from 1100 and 1200. Yes, yes, that's, 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 a, that's a good question.
0: That's, no, 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 that's a good question, but um, there's many books that, that, were, that were written, for example, we'll talk a little later on, that, uh, okay, that there were books written by Maimonides' son. He had one uh, surviving son uh, who wrote a very significant book, as we'll see later on, I don't want to ahead of ourselves, but that was lost, that was lost to, to uh, you know, because things had to be written by hand and copied, you know, even the Talmud, the Talmud was was written by hand and then had to be copied, uh, but the significant words, like the words of Maimonides were so popular and they they were disseminated amongst the entire Jewish people that we have multiple extant copies, we have copies even of Maimonides' own handwriting, is uh, Uh, The Cairo Geniza, if you've heard of it. Maimonides would end up in Cairo. Right now he's in Morocco. He'll end up in Cairo uh, at the age of, I think, 24. He ends up in Cairo. And we found in the 20th century this massive shul in Cairo. And they had upstairs an enormous Geniza. And we found hundreds of documents of Maimonides himself. A library. What Geniza is more is. It's more of an archive, yes. It's more more of an archive. Yes.
1: Fun. 900 year old yeah incredible
0: yeah. stuff yeah Google. Cairo Giza no no i don't know what it was written on. But papyrus Papyrus of cloth. i don't know i don't know what it was written yeah, exactly
1: something strong, strong to be able to last that
0: long yeah and it's it's always helpful well, it was to live. very li- dry very dry, dry yes yes, it didn't,
1: uh, yes. Yeah. So okay from memory he's he's literally sitting in a cave with 63 volumes oh, of
0: the vision oh my the you read his stuff and you just hear about well we, this is just like the beginning of his like massive accomplishments. The man had a capacity, the intellectual capacity of, of who knows how many men. You know, it's incredible. It's incredible, he, and especially through you know his chaotic and we'll see tragic life as well. He he wrote these words and this is just the first of them. We'll see the next one is even greater and it's it's I think it's undeniably his next work. We'll get to Mishnah Torah. Uh, his next work was also, also called the Ar uh but uh, a collection of, of Jewish law a codification of Jewish law which was I think I could safely say the most significant and impactful and influential book since the Talmud now, the Talmud was written by a team of rabbis over 60 years and Amanis himself who lived a very character and very busy life? He was a physician as well, who was busy from morning to night, and he was able to write this uh, this incredible work that is uh, that has changed and altered Jewish history. That's how significant it was. Either way, we're on his mission. We're on his commentary of the Mishnah. Another thing that was unique amongst the com- uh, amongst the uh, with regard to this book was that it was written not only as a commentary of the Mishnah, but also Maimonides gave you in the commentary at the end of every Mishnah, he gave you what the actual halacha was. Now the term halacha means practical application, practical observance of a particular law. So we can analyze a law from a theoretical or intellectual analytical perspective, like an academic. Uh, additionally, there's an additional level, okay, fine, now you're Jewish, how do you actually apply this? What do you actually do? How do you actually observe this particular law in practice? So Maimonides was one of the first to actually include that in his commentary because the Mishnah itself does not have that. That comes from the Talmud, from the Gemara. So he weaved that into his commentary to give it more of a practical meaning for his readers. So you would read a particular Mishnah. He would explain, explain, explain. And at the end, would say, and actually, what you do is such and such and such and such. halacha. And this was going to be uh, an ongoing or lifelong mission of Maimonides to teach halacha, practical Jewish law, to the Jewish people. And another innovation, as we mentioned earlier, was the idea of introductions. In this commentary on the Mishnah, Maimonides wrote three major introductions. An introduction to the Mishnah itself in which he delineates a, a, the transmission of the oral Torah he, he has a very long essay enormously long essay we talk, he teaches you what Torah is all about what prophecy is about um, in a, in a, an amazing introduction to Torah uh, if you dare copy of it in English I would uh, highly advise that we have his introduction to the chapters of the fathers the chapter of the fathers is the book of the Mishnah that deals with ethics so he gives, it's called the Shmona Prakim it, in itself is his own book uh, it's called the, uh, Marmani's Introduction to the uh, Chapters of the Fathers, which is uh, about ethics and midos. And he describes the various components of the soul. He talks about what, it, what man's mission is in life. Very interesting, uh, but also very hard to understand. Just to give that little caveat, uh, uh, introduction and essay. And lastly, we have his introduction to the last chapter of Sanhedrin, in which it is a treatise on reward and punishment, heaven and hell, afterlife, Messiah, the world to come, all those things, a tremendous presentation of principles of Jewish philosophy. There's, a, there's, a, there's not, not a short word, not a short, like you think of an introduction like short. It's more than 5,000 words, like 5,000, I counted the words, I did a word count on it. 5,600 words, it's enormous. Uh, and written in Hebrew. Hebrew, Hebrew always has less words. Than English, so think of it as like it's enormous. And in there, he also writes the 13 principles of faith. 13 principles of faith, famous Maimonides, 13 principles of faith. Now, this is remember, this is a teenager. A teenager is doing it, publishes well, he actually published it when he arrived in Morocco in 19 at the age of 24. But a teenager is publishing, or someone who's quite young. Quite a, quite a scholar, but still quite young, and he wrote what he what he said is this is the this is what you have to believe in. You want to be Jewish? What does it mean? Thirteen things that are essences of the principles of faith, and this was enormously controversial. And uh, we'll see with every one of Ammonite's great literary accomplishments, it always came together with some heavy dose of controversy, and the idea of assigning a moniker of principle to a certain belief or a certain law was almost unheard of till then. And there was a basic question. Wait a minute. Assuming we got the entire Torah from God, how could you say that this one is more important than this one? How can you say that this belief, this faith, this ideal, this mitzvah is more important? Than, how do you assign the term principle as it being more essential than anything else? It's all the Word of God. So this was enormously uh, controversial. There were uh, rebuttals. There were books written, like the famously book, a book called the Book of Principles, written by Rabbi Yosef Alba, who was a, uh, also a great scholar and a contemporary, and he tried to refute the Rambam. And he said, no, there's not 30 principles. There's actually three principles. Those three principles are belief in God, belief in Torah, and belief in reward and punishment. And if you actually were to analyze Maimonides' 13 principles, you'll find that these 13 are really five, four, and four. The first five are belief in God, the next four are belief in Torah, and the last four are belief in reward and punishment. So in essence... Rabbi Yosef Albo, in his, in his rebuttal to Maimonides, is actually agreeing with Maimonides. That there's really three principles, but three principles that have multiple elements to a principle. For example, if I were to say, hey, you have to believe in God, that's a principle of Judaism. Well, what does that mean to believe in God? So Maimonides, number one, says you have to believe in God. That's the first principle. Number two, you have to believe that God is indivisible. Part of having faith in God is believing that this God is something that's not, has no physicality, has no body, it cannot be divided into parts. That's the Jewish definition of God. God's eternity. God alone is the subject of worship. In essence, those first five of the, of the 13 principles of Maimonides are different elements of the same idea, belief in God. The next four, God communicates with us. So God, there's the idea of prophecy. Number two the preeminence of Moses' prophecy. Moses' prophecy was different. Number three, the Torah that we have today is the one dictated to Moses by God. And number four, the Torah is unchangeable, it's immutable. All those four are four uh, elements, four components, four aspects of the idea of faith in God. And lastly, the last four are are to believe in that God is aware of what we do. Hence, our actions have an impact. And we get the reward and punishment. The idea of a Jewish Messiah, which is an element of of, of reward and punishment, and the the idea of resurrection of the dead, which is additionally an idea of reward and punishment. So those are the Maimonides' 13 Principles of Faith that he wrote as a youngster. It was a subject of very controversy, but ultimately, like all the controversies of Maimonides, he prevailed. And in every Jewish prayer book, we have the Ani Mamin's, which is a shortened version of these 13 Principles. And we also have the prayer of Yiddal. And Yiddal is a poetic, uh, a poetic way of saying these 13 principles. And uh, Maimonides' 13 principles have been uh, accepted pretty much uh, as being the principles of the Jewish faith. Now it's important to note that even though Maimonides' 13 principles of faith were contested by his peers and debated, uh, even after his death they were debated, no one denied the validity of his, uh, of these ideas. No one said that, oh, to be Jewish, you don't have to believe in any one of these things. They were just arguing on the fact that it was, was it a principle or not? Was it a principle? Was it, does it have superiority on the, uh, over any other idea? I mean, it's important to know when you hear, "Oh, Maimonides' pr- principles of faith were a subject of great debate." It's important to not make the mistake in thinking that the actual veracity of those statements was in debate. That was never a part of the debate. The debate was whether these true statements are principles or not. Either way, this gives uh, this was Maimonides' uh, first major literary accomplishment: the commentary in the Mishnah written in a way that people can understand it, written in Arabic, language of the land, written with halacha, written with the actual application of the law part of the commentary, and gives us what would end up being the, uh, the backbone or the basis, the foundation of Jewish philosophy and theology that he did before he was 24. At the age of 24, uh, Maimonides, the Rambam Rambam, by the way, is an acronym for Rabbi Moses Ben Maimon. His father's name was Maimon. his, uh, his name was Rabbi Moses, Rabbi Moshe. so Rabbi Moshe Ben, the son of Maimon RB RMBM stands, is in Hebrew reads Rambam. this is called Rambam. Maimonides is a Latin, Latinization of his name, just like Nahmonides <laughs> which is the son of Maimon. So he arrived in Cairo uh, at the age of 24, where he was, was to live the rest, the remaining of his life, and last 45 years of his life. Who
1: was uh, administering Egypt at the time?
0: Well, we'll get to that. The Sultan Saladin. We'll hear more about him, because Ramam is going to have a very close relationship with him. Uh, so we'll hear more about that. So he arrived there at the age of um, 24, and he was going to live there to to his death in the year uh, 1204 at the age of 69, just short of his 70th birthday. And uh, there happens to be a problem. uh, Three times in the Torah it says that you shouldn't go live in Egypt. And the Ramah lived in in Egypt, lived in Cairo, more precisely in Fustat, which is a suburb of Cairo. So we and we have letters today. They found the letters in the Geniza They found the letters. Ani Moshe he signed it. Ani Moshe ben Maimon Hasafardi. I, Moses, son of of of, of Maimon from Spain. Sfarad is the Hebrew for Spain. HaOver Bechol Yom l'avim who transgresses every day, three prohibitions. These were three prohibitions of not living in in Egypt. Either way, there's a debate. What, was he allowed to live there? He there was They said that he was there was that argument that he tried to move to Israel, but Israel was in ruins from all the um, Crusades. Either way, he ended up in Egypt. That's where he lived uh, for the rest of his life. Now, the one thing that everyone knew about the Rambam coming in here, that he was the uh, the uh, epitome of a Renaissance man. He was a great philosopher whose philosophy is debated till now. He was a physician. He was an expert of poetry, mathematics, astronomy, he was a linguist, and of course, he was a halakhist. Most of this was self-taught. Most of this was self-taught. When he arrived at Cairo, he began practicing medicine. Now today, to become a doctor, you have to actually go to school for like 150 years, 12 years, whatever it is, in residency. Uh, but in the back in the, in, the, in the ancient times, that wasn't like that. So, so he
1: was a Jewish, so he became a doctor.
0: Right? So he became a doctor, and not only that. Yeah, we actually have today. Uh, there's multiple books that we have today. His books on on medicine. He wrote tr- books, I guess, that were widely, uh, the widely, um, uh, widely acclaimed books because they survived till now. Uh, we have uh, his books on, uh, but needless to say, his books on halakha uh, outshine his books on medicine. But did he get training from somebody else to become a philosopher, what? to become a medical scientist? Who was his role model? Uh, b- 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 I don't know, we don't know much about, about his education. We do know that he was considered to be a great physician, he had a very great reputation, and speaking of the Sultan Saladin, Maimonides quickly became the official. Uh, court physician for Saladin's uh, uh, ministers and his harem. And he had quite a large harem and Maimonides was very busy tending to the medical needs uh, at the palace. The king was quite fond of Maimonides and he appointed him with the title of Nagid. Nagid is the official representative of the Jewish community to the palace and we have lists of his diplomatic and political achievements that seem to have saved the Jews from a lot of. Uh, he had a lot of great uh, success. He scored many uh, concessions in favor of the Jewish people.
1: Oh, was Saladin a Turk?
0: Uh, I believe. No, Saladin wasn't. In, was in, was in, uh...
1: No, the Turks weren't there in the Middle S- East at the time. They were yeah. still somewhere in Central Asia. But is it the same Saladin who was a sparring partner of King Richard. That's right. Like That's
0: right, yes. Uh, yeah, and you could, uh, it's well known that Maimonides was here the court physician. And we have a letter. We actually have a letter. This, Maimonides has a letter describing his typical day. And this letter, if you, I'll read it to you. I'm reading. read it That's why I brought this here, the letter. He wrote this letter to, remember we had his original book, uh, his first book, Commentary on the Mission, written in Arabic. But he's Saints in translations by the Ibn Tibun family, so who lived in France. So we have a dialogue between them because he would he they would they would write letters. What does this mean? What does that mean? Rama was a prolific writer of letters as well. And one time Rabbi Ibn Tibun writes a letter. I want to come visit you. So Amani's writes to him in a letter and he describes to him he says, If you come to me, come visit me, you won't be able to see me. I'm way too busy. And here's my day. And here's the letter. Ready? I selected parts of the letter because I don't want to, for brevity's sake. And uh, this is not my own translation, so. But it's a, it, This this is the letter. It's just not. Uh, I can't. I can't, uh, I can't vouch for the exact veracity of the translation. I'm sure it was written in Arabic as well, but this is a good translation. Uh, the Lord Himself knows how I'm able to write this letter. It's like, he's like, I don't even know how I'm able to write this letter. So he starts off. I have to run away from people. Isolate myself and him in, in a hidden place. Sometimes i have to lean against the wall and at others i have to write lying down because i am so ill and weak I am already coming to old age but with re- but with respect to your wish to come visit me i rejoice that you would come like to come and i long for your companionship more than you are happy to see me i would be happy to see you though it worries me that you would ma- have to make the dangerous sea trip this is what i told you my mother seemed to have this phobia of travel because we know his brother died at sea. My advice is that you should not come. What advantage would you have in coming here except that you would see me for a few minutes? If you want to have a private audience with me and discuss matters of wisdom, don't even hope for one hour during the day or the night. I will write you my daily schedule. Listen to this, guys. I live in Fustat and the Sultan lives in Cairo. The distance between them is 4,000 cubits. Cubits is a termutical It was a uh, measurement, It's about a mile and a half. My duties to the sultan are very heavy. I must see him every morning to check on his health. If one day he does not feel well, or one of the princes or the women of his harem doesn't feel well, I cannot leave Cairo that day. It often happens that there's an officer or two who needs me, and I have to attend to healing them all day. Therefore, as a rule, I am in Cairo early each day, and even if nothing unusual happens, by the time I come back to Fustat, half the day is gone. Under no circumstances do I come home earlier, and I am ravenously hungry by then. When I come home, my foyer is already full of people—Jews and non-Jews, important people and not, judges and policemen, people who love me, and people who hate me—a mixture of people, all who have, uh, uh, all of whom have been waiting for me to come home. Imagine he finishes his long day at work, comes home, this whole house is full of people. They're all sick. He's a famous doctor, as we mentioned. I get off my donkey, wash my hands, and go out to the hall to see them. I apologize and ask that they should be kind enough to give me a few minutes to eat. That is the only meal I eat every day. Then I go out to heal them, write them prescriptions and instructions for treating the problems. Patients go in and out until nightfall. And sometimes, I swear to you by the Torah, I'm not exaggerating, he says, it is two hours into the night before they are all gone. I talk to them and prescribe for them even while lying down on my back from exhaustion. And when the night begins, I am so weak I cannot even talk anymore. Imagine? <laughs> because of all this, no Jew can come and speak to me in wisdom or have a private audience with me because I have no time except on Shabbos. On Shabbos, the whole congregation, release at least the majority of them, come to my house after morning services and I teach the members of the community as to what they should do during the entire week. He would, he would give a class. He said, this is the class for the whole week because I, ca- I can't see you the rest of the week. We learn together in a week fashion until the afternoon. Then they all go home. Some of them come back and I teach them deeply between the afternoon and evening prayers. That is my daily schedule. And I've only told you a little of what you would see if you would come. He's like, I'm toning it down, basically. That's his letter. And I think that, like, this gives an insight, like, this, how busy this man was. And I think if you are here more about his... Accomplishments—it just makes it even that more mind-boggling, you How know?
1: sixty-nine,
0: it, and it, it you just only
1: ate one meal a day.
0: <coughs> <coughs> this, this is, <laughs> this is, this is what he's writing on, this, and he's saying that this is just a little bit of, of what I, of what I have to do. Like, when did he when did he study? When did he have time to write? We don't even know. Like, it's just be, it's mind-boggling the capacity of this individual. And you know, my grandfather once said he quoted from his rebbe: he "says that If the Gentiles had Maimonides." if he was one of theirs, they would immediately deify him. Right away, they would deify him. No question about it, they would deify him. Because this is just someone so mind-boggling, and for the Gentiles, like, to them, like, whoa! This, this, like Anytime they see a, a human doing supernatural things, they're like, it's got to be a god, yeah,
1: right? sure he was one person.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, we have all his contemporaries. It's it's re- Yes. Okay, so that's his life, that's his day, and... We see some of his accomplishments, but now here comes the bomb. And this work that we're about to talk about, the next of his great works, called the Mishnah Torah. Now, I know it's confusing, because we have the the Mishnah, which is written in circa 200. And he's writing a book called Mishnah Torah. Uh, The reason for that is because the word Mishnah means repetition, to repeat something, to to, to do it again. And the Mishnah, the Mishnah was written in a way that could be easily be repeated to memorize. Maimonides wrote the Mishnah Torah as a repetition of Torah. And we'll see what that means. Uh, this book was his magnum opus and perhaps the magnum opus of the entire Jewish people. I, it's easily the most impactful book since the, uh, the Talmud, uh, the year 500. And It was revolutionary. It was revolutionary. And I want to give a little bit of background before I describe what this actual book is. You know, we we talk about uh, the Torah, what the Jews actually got. We know they got the written Torah, but they also got the oral Torah. And the oral Torah is not just the laws, but also the application of the laws. So uh, the example that Maimonides himself gives, this is an example that I pulled from his works, he says that in the written Torah, it says that the holiday of Sukkot, we have to sit in a Sukkot. See, there's a out over here right now, just built. Right? It's a law of the Torah. Be Sukkot Shivat it says the verse in the Torah, in, uh, during the holiday of Sukkot, you should sit in the sukkah for seven days. That's what it says in the Torah, the written Torah. Moses taught the Jews what that actually means. So, for example, he says it's obligatory for men only, not for women. If someone is sick, they're not obligated. If someone's a traveler, they're not obligated what defines kosher schach? It has to have a cover. It has to have uh, uh, the, the uh, foliage on top. What constitutes the kosher schach? It has to be organic. But it cannot be anything that was used for a utensil or a garment. Uh, you have to eat there and sleep there and, and drink there, etc., etc. All the various aspects of a law uh, that is hinted to in the Torah, and the written Torah was actually transmitted orally to the entire Jewish people. There was a whole system in place to make sure it was done uh, accurately. It's a topic for a different day. How it was actually transmitted actually without any mistakes. But either way, the written Torah was an outline, but the actual law, the halacha, the application was transmitted orally in a very sophisticated method to ensure that it was done so successfully without mistakes or disagreements. And that worked wonderfully for 1,500 years. 1,500 years later, about the year 200 of the Common Era, we meet an individual by the name of Rabbi Judah the Prince. You heard that term? Mm -hmm. Judah the Prince. And he is known by another name, Rebbe, which just means rabbi. And if you open up the Talmud, it says, Rabbi says, wait a minute, which rabbi are we talking about? It's referring to Rabbi Judah the Prince, because he was accepted by the entire Jewish people as being just the rabbi because of what he did. And what he did, what he he, uh, decided to do was to write down the Mishnah. The Mishnah being the laws of the Torah. He transitioned the actual halakha from being entirely oral to being written down partially. Now, why did he do that Uh, and how did he do that? Uh, uh, We'll... I wanted to quote, bring another quote here from Maimonides himself, who talks about Rabbi Judah the Prince and his efforts in writing down the Mishnah. What he tried to accomplish with doing that. Am I going a little too fast here? Everyone's good. If he wrote it, is he taking dictation from somebody? No, no. Uh, it was a collaboration of more than a thousand rabbis over many, many years. Well, oh, he'll he'll describe. I'll, I'll read Maimonides. Maimonides just gives a very Sorry. good. No, 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 no very good description of what Rabbi Judah the Prince set out to accomplish and why. Rabbi Judah the Prince wrote the Mishnah. This is taken from the introduction of his Mishnah Torah, which is the book we're analyzing now. More precisely, the 14 books we're analyzing now. Maimonides' Mishnah Torah, repetition of Torah, otherwise known by its alternate name, Yad HaChazak, the Mighty Hand. And he writes, Rabbi Judah the Prince wrote the Mishnah. Okay? From the time of Moses until Rabbi Judah the prince, no one had written a book from which the oral Torah was publicly taught. Rather, so 1,500 years, no one wrote this book. Rather, in each generation, the head of the court or the prophet at the time wrote down for his private use notes on the traditions he had heard from his teachers, but he taught in public from memory. The Jewish law the oral Torah, the application, the practical observance of what the written Torah hints at, was always done in an oral fashion. Now, why was it done orally? Because the, uh, an oral tradition is much more fluid. There's inflection. If I were to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I did not hit my wife, what would you say? What does that mean?
1: Obviously.
0: No. If I said I did not hit my wife, it means I did not hit my Why wife, correct?
1: It. Why would you bring it up? Because well, okay, but
0: that happen. you're deducing already. You're but let, 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 right, let's so play you know. a little game here. Let's play a little game here. If I said I did not hit my wife, what does it mean? It Somebody means. Somebody else did. No, not yet. <laughs> it like, got to there. It means I did not hit my wife. Yeah. However, if I said I didn't hit my wife, it means what you said.
1: Someone else
0: did. Someone else did. Yeah,
1: I'm gonna... If
0: I were to say I didn't hit my wife.
1: oh, maybe you did something else no, That means you wife. kicked her or you.
0: Yeah. And if I said, I didn't hit my wife, what does that mean? Exactly. So I just gave you one sentence with the same words That's with four different meanings. Which is an example of what when something is transmitted orally, there is room for inflection. There's room for insinuation. And it's, it's a much more fluid method of transmission. We want we have Torah. The Torah is the most essential piece of information that must be transmitted accurately. If it's not done accurately, we say the entire mission of, the, of, of humanity is at risk. How
1: did Jews ever keep it all together for heaven's sakes? If they, you couldn't. Sit there and orally teach all these people
0: over here. For example, and ignore all this whole bunch of shit. Yes, uh, you're at. You're, so you're mentioning a good point because you see a world where most Jews are not dedicating their lives to study. However, if all you guys were studying for 14 years at 18 hours a day uh, and dedicating your intelligence to studying the to- oral tongue, you probably would get it. Right? That was common practice. That was common practice. Plus. There was always a failsafe uh, called the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was centralized Jewish leadership. Where if there were to arise any disagreement or conflict in what the actual law would be, it would be mediated over there. Plus, we had prophets. We had uh, Jewish people were living in unity. They lived all in Israel, pretty much. Uh, eventually, they were living in There were two centers, but. So long as you have these fail-safes and you have people dedicating their lives to study, you have uh, the possibility of ensuring its continuity with, uh, with complete accuracy. And we don't have, there's no, record, no, no, no recording of any disagreement of any sort uh, for thousands of years, more than a thousand years. Because it, it was done so properly. It was set up in a way, this is an entire different class, but we can have this class, but how the Torah was set up to ensure it's being, uh, uh, being transmitted Entirely accurately. Plus,
1: whenever they were in the desert for the 40 years,
0: that's all they were Well, they had Moses there. They had they Moses. And there. that's all they were doing, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, and they also had Moses. Yeah. And we, we know. we were going to read in a few weeks what Moses says at the end of his life. Ask me any question. If there was any disagreement. They went to Moses. You know? And then eventually to Joshua. And eventually to the, to the judges like Samuel and uh, Giddon and all these. Uh, they had great centralized Jewish leadership. Plus, they had a dedicated population, a dedicated to study and uh, and and a, a, a immersion in study, not just study. Let's let's study on Sundays for an hour and a half, or no, not to belittle what we're doing here, of course not, but <laughs> but much more of a dedication towards study and scholarship. And
1: and who and, who, uh, <sighs> who made the uh, the bread, the money to, to pay for these guys to sit here eighteen hours well, a day? Same as in these little today. Right? Yeah, that's well, so so important. So. Like the Levites,
0: you give them a, a donation uh, for the first part
1: of the... Uh, the yeah, well... Um, uh, but it's like in any community. Even... ways uh, uh, for the monks uh, in Christianity, yes. right? Yeah,
0: but also, also well, the ju- uh, this happens to be an issue of great debate because Maimonides <coughs> takes a very... In multiple places in his writing, takes a very strong stand against people studying Torah for a livelihood. Maimonides, I mentioned this in a different class, Maimonides writes... Um, not, not, not over here. But Mani's right. He says, listen, people that are working they absolutely should work. Don't make the Torah into a, a shovel to dig with or a crown to get glory from. He very, very strong. Maimonides goes on uh, almost a diatribe. I could, we can re- read this in his commentary to the Mishnah. The Mishnah says in chapters of the Fathers, don't make the Torah a shovel to dig with or a crown to get glory from. And Maimonides goes on a rant, diatribe, against people that study Torah uh, in exchange for money. And he brings examples. It goes on and on and on and on. And he repeats that again in Mishnah Torah. So he was clearly not, not, not in, in, uh, uh, in the belief that people should Torah for, for, for payment. Uh, but he also writes. He says, listen, people, even people that are working, they should make their Torah pursuits the uh, primary focus of their lives. And their, their, their professional pursuits should be secondary. Someone, someone has 12 hours in the day to do things. So three hours dedicated to, Torah, to, dedicated to your livelihood and the nine hours dedicated to Torah. So he says, "Listen, yes, of course, everyone should work." He was of that opinion, but still, <laughs> how do you abandon the Torah nine hours as a minimum? You know, just for regular, common folk. No, no, not for the, not for the scholars, not for the. In the you know, this is for everyone. That, that's what he writes. He writes it in the laws of, of Torah. He writes that. So yes, even those that worked, there was in in times in in, in times, and years bygone, there were. You know, the Torah said the Mishnah says, "Make your Torah pursue the uh, the ikar, the primary focus and everything else to be secondary if there was that attitude it's not so hard to, to to see how and you know what between me and you most people today don't really work more than three hours actual work actual work actually there was a study showing that the average person works for, i think two hours and 29 minutes actual actual actual, actual work
1: you think we only work three hours
0: a day? <laughs> <laughs> no, but actual actual work, not yeah, just like crotzing around in the office or drinking coffee. <laughs> Either way, <laughs> uh, topic for a different discussion for a different day. So there was this amazing system of transmission of the Torah, and it was done actually successfully until the times of Rabbi, J- Rabbi Judah the Prince, when it was written down and it was codified and canonized. Uh, but before that, no one had actually done this work final work that was taught publicly. Rather, each one had their individual notes, but publicly they taught orally from memory. Back to Maimonides' own work. So too, each individual wrote, according to his ability, parts of the explanation of the Torah and of its laws that he had heard, as well as the ma- new matters that developed in each generation, which had not be received by tradi- tradition, and had been deduced by applying 30 principles for interpreting the Torah, etc. Such has always been done until the time of Rabbi Judah the Prince. What did he do? He gathered together all the traditions, all the enactments, and all the explanations, and all the interpretations that have been heard from the times of Moses, our teacher, or have been deduced by the courts of all the generations and all matters of the Torah. And he wrote the book of the Mishnah from all of them. And he taught it in public. And it became known to all of Israel. Everyone wrote it down and taught it everywhere. So that the oral Torah would not be forgotten. This is an entire book, but really it's 63 books organized in six sections, which is all of Jewish law, written down and agreed upon and finalized and accepted by the entire Jewish people. Now, why did he do that? Why did, I, why did Rabbi Judah the Prince do that? Why did he not leave it the way it was? What was wrong with it till, till then? Because he saw that the students were becoming fewer and fewer, Calamities were continually happening. Remember, the Romans uh, started uh, enacting restrictions on Torah study, public Torah study. Uh, wicked government was extending its domain and increasing its power, and the Israelites were wandering and reaching remote places. Right? The decentralization of Jewish, the Jewish community, was uh, a tremendous detriment to continually teaching Torah in old fashion. And he thus wrote a work to serve as a handbook for all so that it could be rapidly studied and would not be forgotten throughout his life. And He and his court continued giving public instructions of the Mishnah. This was groundbreaking. This was a finalized, authoritative text that would incorporate all of Jewish law. 63 books, broken up to 523, I think, chapters, and it covers everything everything of jewish law now this was a very terse very succinct very brief jewish uh, jewish hand it was like kind of a handbook and it was called mishnah because the idea was to repeat it and to memorize it and still today i have i have a nephew who lives in israel and they memorize vast amounts of mishnah they know these kids kids are 9 years old in israel and they know Tens of books of Mishnah by heart. You say, okay, tractate Shabbos, book of Shabbos, right? There's a book called book of Shabbos. Chapter 14, boom, he starts reading. He reads it all in Hebrew, right? Till this day, there are people that are memorizing the Mishnah, right? And while it was a written document of Jewish law, it didn't actually give you halacha. Halacha is the holy grail, so to speak, of Jewish law because it's the actual practical application. It's all the various uh, manifestations of a certain law. It's the exceptions. It's the sources. It's the understanding. It's the interpretation. It's everything else that wasn't included in the Mishnah. That was retained in its oral fashion. What Rabbi Judah the Prince did was save the Jewish people from having them forget the Torah. However, he did only what was necessary in taking the oral Torah and writing it down he only wrote down the actual crude, so to speak, laws. It was written very briefly, and the rest of the actual law, that was still maintained in its oral fashion. Right? Because he wanted to minimize this, uh, this decision that he made. Now, because there were still vast sums of the oral Torah that was transmitted orally, there came a point in time where even that cannot be maintained, And hence we have 300 years later, roughly, this is all rough, about the year 500, we have the Talmud being written down. Now the Talmud is an enormous expansion of the effort began by Rabbi Judah the Prince. It took the laws and expanded them. It it, 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 it expanded and expounded upon them. You might have four lines of Mishnah and 178 lines of Talmud. It's, It's hundreds and hundreds and thousands of of, of very large documents, and today's print will have 2,711 uh, pages. Each one of these pages is uh, tremendously dense. You could spend months on a single page. Um, the greatest scholars, can't, most of them, can't do more than a, a page in a day. You know, it's an enormous amount of information. But what it is, is it takes this law of the Mishnah and gives us every, all the background information. Gives us the sources. It gives us the applications. It gives us the exceptions. It gives us everything else we need to know about a certain law. And it's a very, uh, it is very meandering. It doesn't stick to the topic. It might say uh, we're talking about something. We're trying to prove something. We're trying to analyze something, and we're bringing something else, and we just go off on the tangent. And three pages later, we'll get back to our original uh, discussion.
1: Yeah. Simplicity is genius. Yes. What in the world can we do
0: for our... uh, Simplicity is genius, and you're a- you're asking the question.
1: The question is, what book already? What? Well, Shokhan Arah.
0: Well, so so so, listen to what, what Maimonides writes. He says, listen, the Talmud, enormous scholarship, and enorm- what it did is it gave us everything, everything we need to know. However, it's very hard to find it. If you want to actually know what you need to do, it's all there. It's all there. But you have to be a tremendous scholar to even learn it once, much less to actually remember it.
1: I go
0: with the shovel. <laughs> go with the shovel, yeah. Um, and he writes, he says, listen, it's not user-friendly for the common folk. If you want to know what to do, halakha, it's in the Talmud. Go find it. It's a needle in Houston. Right? It's a needle in five hundred haystacks, right? They don't have a uh, table of contents. Well, well how they do. Well, yes, and it, it is organized by subject, but oftentimes it goes on to a different subject. And over time a single subject could be spread out into four different books. And you won't even know where to find it unless you're a tremendous scholar. You know? You have uh, topics that are discussed in multiple places in the Talmud, sometimes ten or twelve places. And to actually know what to do, you have to collect all of them, analyze each one of them individually, compare and contrast, them, understand what the contents of each one of them is. Right? Tremendous scholar. Not for the common folk. So this is where Maimonides comes in. Did
1: you have to do
0: that? Me? Yeah. What are we talking about me? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's... Well, <laughs> <that's, laughs> oh, today, <laughs> it's, it's, it's... Is it's that this. something that rabbis... I'm sorry, I'm today, not Today, absolutely, absolutely. No, absolutely. Today, people do that. They spend... Uh, people in yeshiva, what they actually do is they study Talmud, and they study Maimonides. But what's Maimonides... Well, how did, well, how does Maimonides fit into this? We have the mission written down we have the Talmud written down. Everything's there. Very hard to find it. Let's, let's see what he writes. The subject matter of the Talmud, is back to the words of Maimonides in his introduction, is inter- interpretation of the text of the Mishnah and explanation of its depths and the matters that developed in various courses from the times of Rabbi Judah the Prince to the writing of the Talmud. If you were to take the Talmud and the Tosefta and the Sifra and the Sifri and the Toseftot, which is other books which are contemporary, from all of them From this enormous amount of data and information are to be found what is forbidden and what is permitted, what is clean, what is unclean, what is liable, what is exempt, what is fit for use, what is unfit for use, according to an unbroken old tradition from the times of Moses at Sinai. It's all there. You take the Talmud, both Talmuds, there's the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud, the Sifra, the Sifri, the Toseftas, the Mechiltas, all these books that are contemporary to the Talmud if you take all of them, you know what that will do. You know practical halacha. What do I do? I'm Jewish. What does it mean? Uh, it's there, but where do I find it? Is it here? Is it there? Is it there? Well, how, do I, how do I assemble all this information? How do I organize it? How do I make it practical? Continues Maimonides. After they wrote the Talmud... The people of Israel were scattered throughout the nations most exceedingly and reached the most remote parts and distant islands. And armed struggle became prevalent in the world, and the public ways became clogged with armies. There became a lack of interaction and dialogue and interface amongst the various Jewish communities. Jewish people are spread out. They're under exile and turmoil. Inquisition, we know. We have very challenging times for the Jewish people. The study of Torah as a result of that declined. And the people of Israel ceased to gather in places of study in their thousands and myriads as they had before. Rather, they gathered together as only a few individuals in each town and each city and occupied themselves with the Torah. The Talmud is an amazing book and very useful if you're a tremendous scholar. And for years, hundreds of years even, there were tremendous scholars and they were studying Torah multitudes. And people were able to use the Talmud for practical law. However, writes Maimonides, during our times it's no longer possible. And, and only the sages, only those individuals know what to, who have the time, the dedication, the wherewithal, study all, all the Talmud, only they actually know what to do with it. He writes again, in our times severe troubles come one after another, we are, and all are in distress. The wisdom of our sages has disappeared, the understanding of the discernment is hidden. Thus, uh, what had seemed clear uh, have in our times become hard to understand so that only a few properly understand them. And uh, the study of the Talmud requires a broad mind, a wise soul, considerable time before one, can, before one can correctly know from them what is forbidden or permitted and other rules of the Torah. So we have a problem we have enormous amounts of information that is not organized in a way for it to be simple to understand for the common folk. You have to be a trained scholar who dedicates your life uh, to study and scholarship and then you'll know what to actually do from the Talmud. But most people aren't doing that. For this reason, I, Moshe, the son of Maimon, the Sephardi from Spain, I intend, uh, f- uh, found that the current situation is untenable, unbearable. So, relying on the help of Hashem, blessed be He, I intently studied all of these books, and I wrote what uh, uh, and I and I wrote very clearly what is forbidden, what is permitted, what is clean and what is unclean, and all the other rules of the Torah. Everything in clear and precise language and style, so that the whole oral Torah would become thoroughly known to all without bringing any problems or solutions or different points of view, rather clear, convincing, and correct statements in accordance with a law drawn from all these words and commentaries that have appeared from the, whole, from the times of Richard the Prince to the present. This is so that all the rules should be accessible to the small and to the great, like you mentioned, in the rules of each and every commandment, and the rules of the legislation of the sages and prophets, in short, so that a person, listen to this, guys, listen to this, In short, so that a person should need no other book in the world. Just this one. A work that would collect all of the oral Torah, including the positive and negative uh, laws, the customs, negative legislations, enacted from the times of Moses till today. And um, thus I have called this work a the Mishnah Torah, a restatement of the Torah. Listen to this. For a person reads the written Torah first and then reads this book and he knows the entire oral Torah without needing to read any other book uh, um, uh, besides for them. That's what he set out to write. Mm -hmm. I am going to collect, to organize, to codify all of this Talmud, all of the Mishnah and organize it in a way that's simple for the simple people and for the great people.
1: How big is this
0: book, the Mishnah Torah? Okay, let's get to this Mishnah Torah. So this is the Encyclopedia of Jewish Life, Jewish Practice, Jewish Philosophy, Jewish Belief, Jewish Custom, Jewish Everything. A to Z. Organized to perfection. 14 volumes divided into sections, divided into subsections, divided into uh, paragraphs and subparagraphs organized to such detail that later people would analyze it and would say that we can deduce what Maimonides means from where he placed a certain law. His contemporaries wrote that we have to analyze the Rambam's works so critically that each, as if it was a Mishnah, as if it was the Mishnah which was written a thousand years earlier by a collaboration of a thousand rabbis. Maimonides, uh, Maimonides' works. Later commentaries, when they were to quote him, it says, these are the works of Maimonides who writes with his golden tongue. It's beautifully written. Beautifully written. Amazingly written. And he's going to collect everything. All the laws of, uh, laws of marriage, laws of divorce, laws of Torah, the laws of everything. 14 books, 14, each one of the divine sections, subsections, paragraphs, subparagraphs. Incredible. An incredible, incredible piece of scholarship. And not only is a piece of scholarship, but it was fundamental in taking the Torah, which was in a very disparate fashion, very obscure sometimes, very hard to understand, hard to actually apply, and make it simple, readable, understandable for everyone.
1: And how is it circulated to everyone?
0: Before, you know, bringing... We know, it's a good, it's a good question. We know that this was a very controversial book. Like all my all the great innovations uh, that have ever happened have been uh, controversial, and but it was widely disseminated. Like all my money is widely disseminated. In fact, we know how much so because after his life, many of his works were uh, so controversial. Even Jews that went against it, and we have uh, we have uh, book burnings. Maimonides' own books, even by some Jews, eventually by the non-Jews, uh, you know, King Louis the, uh, the Ninth in uh, in France, uh, there were those that they, the people they told him, hey, listen, Mamani's Guide to Perplex, which is the next of his great accomplishments, uh, it contains uh, anti-Christian uh, information. He says, oh, really? And he, they gathered all copies of the Guide to Perplex and burned them. And eventually, at that very same spot. Soon after, in the year 1242, this is already almost uh, 50 years after Maimonides dies, they burned every single extant copy of the Talmud in France, which was was considered a sign by his detractors that if you're going to burn the Book of Maimonides, eventually the Talmud itself will be burned. And after 50 years, after Maimonides died, it, it, he, he already became infallible. Uh, his detractors just seized. And in fact, we have... Um, Ravina Yona, one of the one of his contemporaries, who was at one point a, a detractor of the Rambam, he wrote the book called Shari Tshuva, Dates of Repentance, to repent for his own uh, going against Maimonides, for his own his own rejection of Maimonides. But either way, it was widely disseminated.
1: He yeah, yeah, had the Rambam has to make another copy every time he want to distribute a book. Right? Well, it was taught by other
0: people. So he wrote it, and it was widely disseminated. My mom words read everywhere. So uh,
1: because Jews, by definition, the percentage of literates is so high. Yeah, it was, it a was 100%. So 100, almost much, 100%. Yeah. yeah, so it's much easier to make copies. There are many more people available to make those copies and disseminate to the community, right? Yeah, absolutely. So how, many, how much time did it take him to write this book?
0: Uh, so we, don't we don't know exactly uh, the best. Uh, I think there is some indication that it was 10 years. Some argue it was maybe 13 years in total isolation. Total isolation. So, but after he was, was so this, so this, this, this uh, it was either after or before. Uh, I'm not so clear exactly. We know the exact dates of when he wrote it. We know that he wrote it during his middle. Ed- I think he finished it maybe when he was 60, but he was also constantly updating it.
1: But he was still working as a palace doctor.
0: It seems like it, yes.
1: So it's not totalism. Well,
0: it, it, it seemed that he might have started it beforehand, but it was an ongoing work. It wasn't like it was a set. And why did you say he wrote it in
1: total
0: isolation? Uh, because that's what I heard. I, I don't know for sure. I haven't seen this documented. But in my research, someone wrote that he wrote a total isolation, but I, it, either he wrote the bulk of it before he became a doctor, or he wasn't yet working, or he took a hiatus. I don't know exactly. I mean, it's a sabbatical. I don't, I don't know.
1: Maybe total isolation means total isolation. Maybe it was at other, nights. Other uh, maybe
0: yes. Maybe it wasn't total isolation entirely. Yes, I, I don't know. These are these are the. I'm sure there's someone's written something about it. Some sort of analysis on it. Exactly. So this the, this book, Mishnah Torah, otherwise known as Yad HaZakha, uh, its impact cannot be understated. It's certainly the most impactful book that the Jewish people have seen since the times of the Talmud. Uh, not only in its in its in its scope and its breadth, but also in what it what it enabled us to do as people. Like it made Judaism user friendly. It made Judaism user friendly, and it was widely disseminated. And its its format and its structure is also something which we haven't seen till then, and we haven't seen even since then. You know, uh, during this during Mamadi's time. Within the within the five hundred uh, year time period, we have other people that attempted to do the same thing. Uh, most primary amongst them is the Tour, who lived in uh, France, son of the Rush, uh, Rabbi Yechiel yeah. Ben Usher.
1: Yeah,
0: and. His, what's interesting is the order of... How does it start? Like, his well, 14 books with sections and subsections, like, what's the order? Like, how, like how is it? What's the format? So we have other, others of his contemporaries that wrote in the format of, let's say, the beginning of the day. So, like, uh, we have the tour, for example, wrote uh, his book of laws, his collection of the Talmud, his uh, kind of copy of Maimonides. Uh, he wrote it in the order of the day. So he starts off with, what, what's the law of waking up in the morning? And what's the law of, of prayers in the morning? And then what's the laws of eating because you eat after you pray? And then what's the laws of the day? And then what's the laws of the week? What's the laws of the year? That was his format. We have others that wrote in the order in the order of the Talmud. So they wrote uh, alongside the Talmud, which, uh, if Maimonides were to do that, would probably not accomplish as much as he did because he specifically was trying to. Uh, was trying to come up with a new way of organizing, because the Talmud could be very disparate, it could be very spread out, it's not really unified uh, in in topic. What well, Maimonides chose to do was write it in order of importance: most important thing first, next most important thing, next important thing, all the way to the least most important thing at the end. Which is remarkable because he's kind of telling you what he thinks is the most important. So, for example, the first book of these fourteen books is called the Book of Knowledge. In it, it contains five sections. Section number one, the laws of the foundations of Torah. What does it mean? What is is Torah all about? What is Judaism all about? The laws of precepts, which is um, his uh, book on, on character, on behavior, on ethics, midos. The laws of study of Torah the laws of idolatry and Gentile practices, and finally, the laws of repentance. These five sections comprise the first book called the Book of Mada, the Book of Knowledge. Uh, This was very controversial. It was, was, uh, uh, along with uh, Maimonides' uh, philosophical work, The Guide to the Perplexed, it was also burned. But he does things in there that no one has ever seen before. Like, he's analyzing some of the philosophical problems, for example, that we have in Judaism. Like, he, he's one who, a, he asked the question, wait a minute, if we believe in an infinite God who's not bound by time or space, whose knowledge is not limited in any way, and he exists in the future mostly, as much as, as he exists in the past, how do we have free will? Which is a very famous problem, but one that not, not many others would even open up that kind of worms because like, that's a major philosophical problem with our definition of God is that and our reliance on free will as a basic mechanism for the engine of, of humanity where they seem to be opposites they seem to not they seem to be uh, they, they seem to not uh, be able to coexist they seem to be mutually exclusive but like this is a problem that he would approach and this was very controversial Uh. Another major controversy of the Mishnah Torah was that it was a law book that didn't contain sources. Maimon did not contain any sources uh, aside from just uh, verses in the Torah. Maimonides is setting out to take the Talmud and organize it and just take all the various aspects of the Talmud and pull from here, pull from there, pull from there and bring in one organized fashion. You know, In some places it's easier. Like sometimes you have a book of Shabbos there's a book in the Talmud called Shabbos. So half the work was already done in finding all the information. right? So when Maimonides uh, has his book on, uh, or his section called the Laws of Shabbos, there's one central place that he's going to pull most of it, then he'll get other stuff from, from elsewhere. But the Laws of Repentance, there's no one place in the Talmud that has laws of repentance. There's no book in the Talmud. None of the 63 books of the Talmud is the book of repentance. He pulled from here, pulled from there. It's remarkable how he's able to collect and organize and codify uh, these laws when he just pulls them from an enormous amount of information and uh, organizes it in a clear, coherent, cogent manner. Uh, but he didn't write any sources. And can you imagine a law book, which is go- which he set out to be the authoritative law book for all the Jewish people, but doesn't tell you where he got any of it. Uh you know, there's a story, there's a letter that he writes that there was this uh, rabbi from Baghdad came to visit him, said to him brought to him a certain law and says, where is this law? Where is it in Talmud? Ramani's thinking, he says, I think it's in Tractate Sanhedrin. So they brought a Sanhedrin and he looked from beginning to end and says they couldn't find it. He says, if it's not Sanhedrin, it must be Tractate Makos. And they looked through Tractate Makos and they couldn't find it. They couldn't find it. So the guy left. He said, well, we don't know what the source is. And then Maimonides says, after he left, I remembered it was in tractate Yevamos, a, a, a third tractate, in a third book of the Talmud. And he said to Meser, they chased after the guy until they told him where the source was. And then Maimonides says, and then I regretted not writing sources. And as we mentioned earlier, his son, Rabbi Avram ben Arambam, the son of the Rambam, uh, was called Rabbi Avraham, he indeed wrote that book, but it was lost. We don't have that. We don't have a copy of that book. We have references to it in other, in other a book books. Of a book of references, exactly. But we don't have the actual book. And part today, like I have written, many, many essays on Maimonides. And the, the first basic question is: Say, fine, Maimonides has a law. Where does it come from? Because he doesn't tell you his process. He doesn't tell you how he got to where he got. He just gives you his conclusion. You have to fill in the blanks yourself. And oftentimes, you'll find a piece of Maimonides that says says the law and presents it in in a a certain fashion and you open up the corresponding piece of Talmud and you read it and it seems to say the opposite. So there's some indication somewhere in the Talmud, somewhere that either this uh, way we're reading the Talmud is wrong or there's some other source that says the opposite that Maimonides somehow prefers to go with the other source. You have to kind of retrace the steps and you have no idea how you got there.
1: So, post Maimonides scholarship, scholarship in case of a conflict between Talmud or visible conflict with Maimonides. Yes,
0: or, him, or sometimes the Maimonides Talmud, will contradict kind of himself.
1: Yeah, it goes with Maimonides.
0: Yes. Oh, no, 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 no. no, no. Maimonides has to fit into the Talmud. So, you might have an ongoing question. I, I see the Maimonides, I see a piece of Talmud, I have no idea how these two things could possibly coexist. And I, myself, I I wrote an amazing article when I was in yeshiva. I was like 23 years old. I have, I can show it to you guys in Hebrew. But I I take a, it's, it's very short also. I say, I take a piece of Talmud. A Talmud is talking about a Jewish slave who wants to redeem himself, whether he could do a partial redemption. So he's, let's say, a slave for six years. He stole, or he robbed, or whatever. He arbitrarily chose to become a slave. Now he gets some, some money. Could he do it partially or not? It's a particular law in the Tractate Judushin. I don't remember the exact context of what, what the Talmud says. You open up Maimonides, and you look at all the commentaries and say, wait a minute, this doesn't seem to fit in. The Talmud says this, and he says this the opposite. And uh, people say, listen, I have no idea where he got it from. In commentaries uh, on the page. Say, I have no idea where it came from. So I wrote an essay and I proved in, in an ingenious way, if I may say so myself, how Maimonides was working behind the scenes based upon a certain source elsewhere in the Talmud that says indicates one thing and how that course and, and how a certain disagreement in the Talmud mirrors a disagreement that we have elsewhere and how the, the how how, how how incredibly Maimonides could just throw something out at its surface level is just completely under, not understandable, but deep behind the scenes. This is, uh, this is my contribution to scholarship. But what he actually, uh, what he actually means and how he got there. So that part of the appeal of, Mamanis, of the study of Maimonides is the unknown and the room for later scholars to, uh, to kind of uh, give in their own input and their own analysis and scholarship, you know. We read the introduction. Mimani says, listen, all you need is my book and this book. All you, need, all, all you need is a written Torah and my book. He set out to write the book to end all books. And ironically, no other book in history has spawned as many, as many other books written upon it. Uh, uh, since his publication in the uh, late 12th century, we have more than 10,000 volumes written upon it with hundreds written every single year. I myself, I have hundreds of Uh, pages of uh, essays and analysis on Maimonides' works. It's incredible. It's like the peach scholarship for us today is Maimonides. Because oftentimes the problem is very evident and the solution is very hidden. Because he says, you you read the Maimonides, you read the Talmud, you study all the Talmud, and Maimonides is on his own. He's on his own. He's on an island. All the other contemporaries says, where did he get this from? Where does this come from? What's going on over here? And your job is just, what was he thinking? This is a man, as we know, a man who was not, he didn't forget any piece of Talmud, that's for sure. A man of tremendous intelligence, intelligence that would just be mind-boggling for us. Way beyond our capacity, and he wrote this. And he revised it and edited it and ensured this, this is it. It wasn't a mistake. It was an ongoing process for, for years. What does he mean? Where is he coming from? How, where is his source? And there's hundreds, if not probably thousands of examples of these kind of quandaries in the study of Maimonides. Uh, like we said, but his son did set out to write that book. We don't have that book, but we do have other books. like right? Commentaries, you'll, the, the first thing the most commentaries of Maimonides will say, at least the, the earlier commentaries, will say the Rambam's source is from X. Either it's a Tosefta, a Talmud, a Mishnah, a uh, Usually, it's, it's fairly clear. But oftentimes, we have major, major, major problems, and that's where a lot of scholarship is uh, developed to try to understand where he's coming from. Now, the work of the Yad HaChadaka, the Mishnah Torah, was accepted by all as a standard beer for halacha, as... I wouldn't say the authoritative code on Jewish halacha, but significantly the most the most significant uh, work of Jewish halacha. It is Maimonides is uh, viewed by all as the greatest codifier we've had of Jewish halacha. Uh, he wasn't the only one to attempt to do that. In later years, we have other people that attempted to do that, and. Uh, he wasn't the, uh, he, he wasn't what he envisioned that he would end up being as being the authoritative work on Jewish law. Uh, there's many uh, areas where he's alone, and therefore, uh, the Shulchan Aruch that was mentioned earlier by Bernie uh, was a similar work done uh, many hundreds of years later, where one where. Uh, Rabbi Joseph Cairo collected all of the Rishonim, not only Maimonides, but also all of his contemporaries, and together with the Talmud tried to come up with uh, uh, the authoritative act of the work of of Jewish law, which we have today as the Shulchan Aruch, which is the set table, codified Jewish law. Uh, But Maimonides' status as the greatest codifier is unquestioned, it's uh, uncontested and this particular set of books, the Yad the Mishnah Torah, as the most significant book of Jewish code uh, of, his, of his time. That was his second major literary accomplishment. And lastly, uh, a book that uh, is widely studied even to this day, even though it's dealing with somewhat of, a, of an extinct philosophy, we have Maimonides' Guide to the Perplexed, Mora Nevuchim, which is even today a basic textbook for philosophy. Ammanis, as a philosopher, studied by non-Jews as Jews as well. And what it is is an attempt to portray Judaism uh, with the framework of Aristotelian philosophy. Aristotle was, uh, even though 2,400 years ago is when he lived, but his philosophy was unquestioned. Um, his, his his framework, the framework of physics and, and just life and philosophy was what uh, was the prevalent way of thinking up to the time of my mind. It isn't now anymore. Uh, but Morot Nebuchadnezzar is a presentation of Judaism in that world, through those lenses. And as you may, uh, as we Fairly assume if you're going to write a book of Jewish philosophy and Jewish life and practice f- through a certain perspective of Greek philosophy, it's going to be very controversial. Uh, this would be Maimonides' most controversial work; uh, it would be banned and burned. Uh, uh, but today, it's uh, still considered a as a standard bearer of uh, of Jewish philosophy. Not quite with the same level as Maimonides' others, but it was also it was likewise it was written in Arabic. And it was almost, we could safely say, it was written for his generation. Today, no one's into uh, Aristotelian
1: philosophy. So right? it's more like so, an intellectual exercise for today. Well, for today, today it's more today academic. It's viewed,
0: like, yes, yes but, uh, but in his time, it was a, an attempt to show Jewish thinkers how their Weltanschauung, their way of life, their worldview, fit in with the overarching, uh, uh, general, uh, greater uh, perspective on philosophy of the non-Jews. It would be the example of taking modern-day philosophy and modern-day social attitudes and showing Judaism in in that. Like if I show Judaism today to contemporary. The people today, you want to show them how Judaism fits in with a, uh, a with with a uh, with a, an existing way of understanding the world. So you might show that, for example, uh, Jewish people, the Jewish uh, way of life has always been to put a premium on justice uh, tolerance on uh, like we mentioned last time when I was here about the Jewish, Jewish way of warfare. It was unprecedented in its time, but today people understand that, you know minimizing civilian casualties that was a Jewish idea 3000 years ago and today we all know that intimately that was kind of the the, the idea of taking Judaism and presenting it in a way uh, or in, in a in a fashion a framework where the the people's way of of, of thinking in Aristotelian uh, philosophy uh, how that fits and how that it, how, how the interplay of, of that with uh, the Jewish the, with, with with Judaism uh Maimonides lived a chaotic and tra- tragic life. His first wife died along with two children that did not survive to adulthood. Uh, his brother, as we mentioned, his brother David, who was very close to, very beloved to, was also a financial backer of Maimonides and his projects. He died at sea. He was a renowned merchant and businessman. Uh, these deaths were tremendously impactful to Maimonides uh, as an individual. He would eventually remarry. He had a son, as we mentioned, Rabbi Avram. But he was exiled multiple times. He lived in multiple different places, lived a life of great ter- personal turmoil. Uh, and yet, and he writes at the introduction uh, of Mishnah, he says, he, he writes, for example, I pulled a quote here. He says, God knows, God can be my, 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 uh, my witness that there are laws that I wrote. In middle of transit, in a caravan, in transit, or I wrote them while I was on uh, at sea, uh, you know, on, on a boat in, in travel. He's saying like I, he lived a life under duress, and that once again should magnify his accomplishments and his implant influence into what he was a co- what, what 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 he achieved and what he did for the Jewish people. Um, how could he have a life? I mean, I know that he didn't have a life other than his writing, his intellectual thing. If he had one wife, and he said that he had two children, they died, and then he had got married again. He had another wife. Does it talk about his anywhere his relationship within his family? You know, we, talk we about could Judaism pull those. We could pull those things a very out. Important part of family life. Yeah, we could talk about that. We we see that from his letters. You know, he was someone who was selfless.
1: I mean, there's no greater self. You, we, we,
0: we, we, we read that letter. Well, his, his, his child was his disciple. You know. So he only ends up with one child. Yes, That's yes. And right. there's, till this day, there's, a, there's a several thousand families that, uh, that point to the I, I had a friend in Israel whose last name was Harambam because he was the uh, reticent of the Rambam. Uh, it's a, they, a matter of great pride. I want to end with Maimonides' uh, his death and his uh, burial. Uh, somewhat of a legend. Uh, that he, how he ended up in Israel, but he's buried in Israel, even though he never lived in Israel uh, during his life, but he ended up in Israel, so there are there's, there's some legends about, his, about that. I don't want to talk about that too much. But on his grave in Tiberias, we have two very unique inscriptions. On one side it says, Moshe ad Moshe kam kam Moshe, From Moshe from the times of our great teacher Moses until Moshe until Maimonides, there was no one like moshe his impact uh, at least the, the epithet on, on his on his great said his impact rivaled that of moses and uh, he had he had no other he had no peers from the time of moses think about w- what a statement that is <laughs> that was that was written about him on the other side of the grave it says hamufhar haminha enoshi which means the choicest the, pr- the the prize of the human race and a great scholar of this past hundred years was asked, why would such a description be written on the Rambam? Ha-min, the prize, the choicest of the human creed, of the human kind, the human species. So he said very interestingly, he says the word min has multiple meanings. It means, on one hand, a species, on the other hand, it means also a heretic, a heathen. So he said, someone, one of Maimonides detractors, as we know, he was very controversial, especially after he died. There was an explosion of controversy in, in his life in, in who he was and his and his writings. There were some people that said he was a heathen. He was a min. So the guy came and wrote on his grave, Hamin the Heathen. And then someone else wrote Hamufhar, Hamin Haenoshi who added on those those two words to to to, to, to say that this was uh, to to just kind of uh, masked the intention of the original uh, graffiti artist on Maimonides' grave. So I think uh, we got somewhat of an insight into who he was, what his accomplishments were, as, uh, what were his contributions and accomplishments, his literary uh, contributions and accomplishments that guide us to this day. You know, when you think of philosophy... First thing, person, personally think of Maimonides. When you have a question to a problem, right? When you want to analyze or try to take out the conclusions of, of a Talmud, the, and it's also the the, the backbone of our halacha that we have today. We uh, are grateful that we have had someone like Maimonides. Who knows what the Jewish people would look like if we didn't have him in our midst? Thank you. We
1: get, him on Can we get one on Amazon. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs>